Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and we are, uh, we've got four more sermons in our summer series called The Air We Breathe. And in this series, we've been identifying some of the subtle yet sinful patterns of thinking that are prevalent in our culture and that can often creep into our congregations if we're not careful. Things that just, they slip right in without being noticed. And today we're turning our attention to confrontation avoidance. Now I want you to notice I didn't say conflict avoidance because as a culture we're not avoiding that. Uh, conflict is something that we're all too happy, nobody's dodging that sparring match, right? We're, we're angry and we've got some thoughts about some people we've never met before and we want to share those thoughts with the world and, and we do. Right, so you don't need to go on social media for more than five minutes to see that conflict avoidance is not our problem. But confrontation, well, that's different. Because confrontation actually involves meeting with people that we disagree with. It involves looking them in the eye and having a real conversation where real change can actually happen. And that, that confrontation is frightening. And it's avoided like the plague in our culture. It's, just, it's not a Canadian thing to do to get into that kind of messy conversation. And so we escape, by and large, as a culture, into our gossip, into our grumbling, into our typing. We pretend that that it makes us brave to be voicing all of these thoughts on the internet, but in reality, we're actually just escaping from and hiding from the scary conversations that we really ought to be having in person. This is all too common. This is the air we breathe. But we see in our passage this morning that Jesus calls us to rise above That immaturity that can be all so prevalent in our world. People are sinful. Conflicts are inevitable. But thanks be to God, Jesus here provides us with clear principles for healthy confrontation. So would you look with me now? I hope you have your Bible open to Matthew 18. We're going to be reading from verses 15 to 20. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just as we begin, let me lay my cards on the table. I think that this particular issue is perhaps the most pressing issue for us as a people. Uh, For the North American church, but then also here for us as Redeemer. I would argue that this is the piece that, this has to be nailed down by the grace of God. Because when we neglect what Jesus teaches us so clearly here, it is terribly dangerous and it wreaks havoc. And I would argue that we see it all the time. On the large scale and even here on the small scale. We see it in our personal relationships. We see it in our congregations. We see it in our denominations. This is a massive problem. And part of the reason why it's such a massive problem is that we don't think it's a massive problem. Listen, if I were to ask you, what is the biggest problem in the church today? Perhaps you might say, you know, pornography. 
And listen, is pornography a problem in the church today? You bet it is. You bet it is. But you know, one of the things about pornography is that we all agree right now, that is a problem. Even the person who is, who is right now battling that ongoing sin would say, I know that's a problem. But the sin that we're talking about today is a sin we bring with us into the sanctuary. Right? We're, we'll bring this bitterness, we'll bring this gossip with us into, into the sanctuary. We'll bring it with us into our prayer meetings. This will be a part of, of my social gatherings with other believers. This is a dangerous problem. The goal of the series is to identify what we've called the carbon monoxide sins, right? The sins that you can't see, you can't smell, you, don't, you wouldn't even know. Nobody points and says, look at the carbon monoxide in the room. You don't see it. And I would argue that as we consider this sin today, some alarms are going to be going off in our hearts and in our minds because this is a carbon monoxide sin that just slowly fills up a congregation, slowly fills up a church, and nobody even realizes it's there until the damage is done because we've been hurt by someone. And rather than speaking to that someone, we've, we've spoken to everyone else because that's what Canadians do. Or we see someone going down a dangerous road and we can see where it leads and we're really, really concerned for them, but we sit on our hands silently and watch them go off into oblivion because that's what Canadians do. But followers of Jesus are called to a higher standard. We're called to pursue one another in love. We're called to have the hard talks. We're called to do all of this in a healthy, Christ-exalting way. And to that end, in this passage, Jesus provides us with Clear principles for healthy confrontation in the household of God. I chose each of those words. I know it's a mouthful. I chose those words carefully, though. Healthy confrontation, right? Not, not a fist. Healthy confrontation in the household of God. This is for how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to pull out seven principles, and so I'm going to move quickly today. Ready? First principle we find. Healthy confrontation is necessary when hell is at stake. That's the first thing we learn here. So I talked about how not all confrontation is healthy. I want you to notice what kind of confrontation Jesus is calling us to in this passage. He says, if your brother, what? Sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he sins, that's an important observation. Because a lot of the offenses that we carry with us into church, they have nothing to do with sin and they have everything to do with clumsiness. And Jesus isn't talking to that right here. Let's be honest, a lot of the times we're frustrated because somebody, they cut us off in the parking lot. Or, or, hey, closer to home, or they didn't invite us to that birthday party, or they didn't invite our kid to that birthday party. And I'm spitting mad. But, but that's not sin. That's just clumsiness. Relational clumsiness, yes. But, but clumsiness, nonetheless. So I don't need to deal with that unless perhaps that clumsiness now is leading to sin in your heart because now you're the sinner because you've got unforgiveness, you've got bitterness, you've got anger, in which case... Now you do need to go deal with that because of the sin rising up in you. But listen, healthy confrontation is optional in cases of clumsiness. If you're able to forgive and forget clumsiness, praise God, do it. Like That's going to save you a lot of time. There's going to, clumsy things are going to happen to you five times before you leave the building today. If you are able just to graciously love, believes all things, hopes all things, just, yes, he stepped on my toe, it's fine, I love him. That's great because confrontation is optional in cases of clumsiness, but... Healthy confrontation is necessary when hell is at stake. These instructions are for when your brother or sister sins. And maybe you're thinking, wow, pastor, that is really dramatic language. You do this sometimes. You're, you're all bold. That's, I think you're being too dramatic. Well, look with me at the text. 
Not just, not just our passage for this morning, but look at all of Matthew chapter 18. Because as I was studying and I was reading through this chapter, I, I would argue that I'm not being dramatic at all with that heading. At the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus is dealing with the sins in, in his disciples. He's talking to them and, and then he moves on in verse 7 and he talks about these temptations and man, woe to you if you're leading people into sin. And then he talks about beginning in verse 10, or no, sorry, beginning in verse 9, he's talking about what you do when you're going into sin. Let me just read it. Verse 9. Listen to what Jesus says about how dangerous sin is. He says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So this, this language of, of hell, I'm not adding that for dramatic effect. I'm adding that because that's, what, that's the context of the conversation Jesus is having. And then he goes on to talk about now what we do when we see sin in our brothers. So he says, this is what you do when you see sin in you. But what about when you see, see, see sin in your brother or your sister? And he teaches us it is necessary in those moments to go after them urgently. Matthew Henry says here, we should think no pains too much to take for the recovering of a sinner to repentance. So let me do this. We're just getting started. This is the beginning of the sermon. And some of us are going to be tempted today to to categorize this in some hypothetical, theoretical, pie-in-the-sky thing, right? You know, we're just talking about in theory how we need to deal with one another as as Christians. Can I challenge you today? Because I felt that even as I was writing it. I'm just in this theoretical, hypothetical world. Can I just please challenge you to bring this down to street level? It hurts when we bring it down to street level, but I think that pain is necessary today. It hurt me to think about this today because I know when I bring it down to street level that I have not always done this the way that I should. And I know that I have sat on my hands and I have have just watched idly as people that I love, friends of mine, family of mine, have wandered into a road that leads to, to hell. And I have sat idly by and watched it. And perhaps you have too. And so before we retreat into the theoretical, let's just bring this down and really deal with this today. It is urgent. This falls in a sermon that is urgent. Jesus is speaking urgently. I can imagine tears in his eyes. He just finished talking about how he's the good shepherd chasing after the lost sheep. And then he turns to this. This isn't hypothetical. This is what we do when we see people that we love going down a road that leads to eternal death. And Jesus says, you've got to lean in. Listen, it's hard to have the hard talks. It is painful to have the hard talks. But it is 1,000 times worse to skip those hard talks and then one day to find yourself sitting at that funeral saying, I should have said something. The Apostle James wrote, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death will cover a multitude of sins. As we begin, I would just pray, oh, that we would be a church filled with people who are committed to saving souls from death. That's the first principle we learn here. The second one is this. Healthy confrontation is commanded by Jesus. Look at verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. I thought about taking this section out altogether. This is going to be the fastest point in the sermon. Not much to it. But I thought I'm not going to take it out because if one of our defense mechanisms is to go to this pie in the sky hypothetical world, another one of our defense mechanisms is to write this off as just, you know, pastor's personality. Or maybe you're here today and you're thinking, man, this is just not me. I'm not, 
I don't get in people's business the way that this younger generation does or the way that people like Levi do. I don't feel the need to be meddling in other people's affairs. I live and let live. That's my motto. I can imagine some of us, we're escaping into that narrative right now in our mind. And we're saying, I don't want him putting this on me, so I'm going to tap out. Okay, before you tap out, if that's you, I want to make sure you are mindful of who exactly you're tuning out. Because it's not me. This is a clear command from Jesus for his people. That is for all of us. Not for, not for the nosy people, but for all of the people who are called to resemble Jesus. David Platt says here, this is a command from Jesus so that a failure to do this in the church is sin. And so if you're going to tune out and cross your arms and say, I'm not a meddler, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in doing this whole nosy thing, then you just need to know that you are choosing not just to tune out, but you're choosing to sin. It's a command from Jesus. That's the second principle. Third, healthy confrontation is for restoration, not punishment. Look again at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, what happens? You've gained your brother. Because that's what we're after. Restoration. That's, that's the goal. That's what we want. Here's a third escape. So maybe we've already talked about two escapes you might have. Maybe your third escape is that this just feels like bullying. Is that what we're called? Are we like we're bullying people into obedience? No. That's not what we're after at all. What we're after is restoring people back into right relationship with Jesus. We're not chasing people down so as to smack them and say, what's wrong with you? That's not what he's calling us to here. He's calling us to chase people down so as to bring them home to Jesus. To life. Again, the context makes this so obviously clear. If, again, look down at your Bible. I hope you have it open. If you look right before our passage, look at the paragraph right before it. it my, my Bible says, the parable of the lost sheep. And here Jesus describes how, like a good shepherd, he, he's going to leave the 99 and he's going to find the one, the one who's wandered off into the thorns and the brambles and is stuck in the muck. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd who's going to leave the 99. I'm going to go find the one. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to pull it out, put it on my shoulder, walk back through the thorns and get back to the fold and bring it to safety. He just finished telling that story and then he finishes, he says, so it is not the will of my father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the end And he immediately jumps into our passage this morning. Which means what? Which means that we are an extension of the good shepherd who are are going and getting the sheep. If you found yourself like loving the parable of the the good shepherd and loving the parable of finding the lost sheep, I wonder if you've ever connected the dots. How, humanly speaking, does Jesus go through the thorns, through the brambles, out into the muck and pull the sheep out and bring it back home? How does he do that, humanly speaking? Verse 15 is the answer through his body that is the church. Have you ever thought about that? How, how does he do it? How does he go into the mess? He goes into the mess by sending us, his ambassadors, his people, into the mess so as to bring the wanderer back home. He's not just, and he's capable of whatever he wants, but he's not just, we shouldn't be waiting for him just to send a little vision. I hope that sinner who's, who's wandered into a really terribly destructive, messy situation, I hope that God sends them a dream or something. He's sending you. He's sending me. Like, we're the body of Christ. That's the connection he's making right here. We're an extension of the good shepherd, and it's a privilege to be used by God to pull wayward sheep out of the muck, out of the thorns, and it hurts, and it's messy. 
but it's our calling. Now, so it's not our job when we, to go and pursue them and then to shame them and guilt them and punish them. That's not, that's not what this is, process is for. It's for restoration and bringing them home. No doubt this passage was in the Apostle Paul's mind when he wrote, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Go. Bring him home. Uh, One of the commentators I read, he referenced this story, and I thought it was so powerful, so I'm going to use it. This isn't from my brilliance. I found this. But he talked about the example of David. Um, and David's interesting because if you read the stories of David, sometimes David's conscience was, was like quick as a whip. You know, he, he cuts Saul's robe and then all of a sudden his conscience immediately tells him, I should not have done that. And he's immediately repenting. But then there are other times where David's conscience almost, it just kind of tunes right out. So the story of David and Bathsheba. David is guilty of egregious sin, of rape and murder. And it's, it's wicked, it's awful. But David actually doesn't seem to be all that bothered by his sin. As you read that story, I mean, he thinks he's gotten away with it. And, and it doesn't tell us that David was like lying in bed at night with a guilty conscience. David is just going about life as if everything is fine. And it's not until Nathan comes and looks him in the eye and confronts him on his sin that David is brought to a place of repentance. Meaning sometimes, sometimes people are straying. Sometimes people are wandering. And they're headed headlong in a direction that leads to hell. And they're, they're oblivious to how lost they are. Sometimes all it takes is for one brother or sister to look them in the eye and say, what are you doing? And, and now they're, they're back on track. They're back in the fold. But, but we have to be willing to, to be like Nathan. We have to be willing to be like Jesus and to go after them and to look them in the eye and to have that talk. Not for punishment, but for restoration. That's what healthy confrontation looks like. That's the third principle. Fourth now. Healthy confrontation must begin privately. We're still in verse 15, but there's so much here in verse 15, I thought this is like a, this is just treasure. Let me read it again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, listen, between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. Can I just make an observation? We are awful at this. Um, And when I say we, I mean like just Canadians, North Americans, Redeemer, I'm in the mix. We are just lousy at this. When you see the sin, Jesus teaches us, go and deal with it privately. Don't go to your close friends to seek, seek their counsel. Don't go to your prayer group and mention the person's name and mention all the circumstances so that you can get the wisdom from the prayer group. You just go to the person. Definitely don't go to the internet. Go to them. And then let me add this important clarification. Go to them in person. Go to them in person. Can I tell you, I'm thankful for emails. I'm thankful for texts. You can do so many wonderful things through emails and texts. You know what you can't do? Healthy confrontation. You cannot do it over a text or an email. I speak from experience. Don't do it. That is not the way to do it. Go to them, Jesus says, privately. You look them in the eye. As, as their brother, as their sister, you look them in the eye in love and you, you deal with it. I've been in more of these conversations than I can remember on both sides. I've been the receiver and I've been the one having the, initiating the hard talk, both sides. And can I just encourage you? I can count on one hand the number of times that those conversations didn't end well. Meaning, let me say it clearly, 
Almost every time, those conversations ended so well. Almost every time I came out of those difficult conversations, whether I was giving a rebuke or receiving it, almost every time we came out of that conversation and our relationship was so much stronger and our walk with Jesus was so much healthier and we dodged so much mess because we just dealt with this thing almost every time it worked that way. If we're going to make progress in this church, before we just, we're moving fast, before we rush along, I think some of us need to repent this morning. And again, if we were talking about some of the more overt sins, we touched on pornography, let's just stay there. If, we were, if this was a sermon about sexual sin and pornography, it wouldn't feel weird for me just to pause and say, you know, some of us right now in this moment, you need, you need to identify that sin and you need to confess that to the Lord quietly in your heart. You need to repent. That wouldn't feel out of place in that sermon. But with this one, maybe it feels a bit funny to say it. Let me just say it. Some of us this morning, if we are going to grow in this as a church, we need to repent. And again, I use the language of we because I've been guilty of this too. There have been times when we should have gone to a person and instead we went to everyone else. Times when we made problems bigger than we needed to be. Times when we pushed people further from Jesus than they needed to be because we disobeyed this command. We talked about the people that we were called to talk to and that's sin. Let me just say that again. That's, it's sin to do that. Sin that needs to be repented of. And by the grace of God, there's forgiveness for sin. Forgiveness. You just offer that to the Lord and say, Jesus, I see it. It's sin. I repent. Jesus died on the cross for the sin of pornography and for the sin of gossip and bitterness and resentment. But we need to repent and we need to surrender that to him. And by the grace of God, we need to grow and to live differently now. Matthew Henry wisely counseled, let God's work be done effectually. So like, do this, but with as little noise as may be. Man, we just make a lot of noise sometimes over little things that could just be done. Fifth, after having followed all the steps that we found in verse 15, we see healthy confrontation should follow the biblical process. So I mentioned that I've been in a number of conversations like this, and I said almost every time it ends so well. But then I I do need to be honest and say that on that handful of times, it it doesn't end well. On a handful of occasions, it actually ends really poorly. So then what do we do? Are we left to figure that out on our own? By the grace of God, no. Jesus has provided us with a process to follow. Look at verses 16 to 17. He says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So here he's laying out this process. It's what we refer to as church discipline. So if you've ever heard us use that language, we're talking about Matthew 18, 15 to 20. This is, this is it right here. I want you to notice the process describes for how we engage with a straying believer. Look again at verse 15. If your brother sins. So that's really important. If you're a visitor, sigh of relief, hear that. If your brother sins, meaning... This isn't about your unbelieving neighbor. Don't come to me after the service and say, you know, my unbelieving neighbor is stealing cable. I think we should call a church meeting. Nope. No, we should not. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So there's a sphere of influence here that's being assumed. And there are people that are outside of that sphere of influence. Your your unbelieving neighbor is outside of the sphere of influence that Jesus is addressing here. But it's still actually a little bit fuzzy, isn't it? 
Because in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Well, the question then becomes, well, who exactly is inside the church? If the, you know, if the church is a place, then I could argue all of us today, you are now all inside the church. So now, is this, do we apply this to everybody in this room today? Or what about, what about the, the man who visits once every seven weeks? Once every seven weeks, he pops in here, worships here. He's a believer, uh, and then he disappears again. And we actually, we don't know what his last name is. But then seven weeks later, he's back. Is he inside the church? Does this, is he within our sphere of influence? Like what, how do we handle this? Who exactly is inside the church? That dilemma, that question, actually is really important because you, we do need to think very carefully about who are we responsible to have these talks with? Who, who are, when we stand before the Lord, like who ultimately are we responsible where God will say, you should have followed this process? That dilemma, that question is why we practice church membership here. And often when we talk about church membership, inevitably people will say, well, where do you see that in the Bible? And I will point them here to Matthew 18. And the process, the existence of discipline where we put a person out. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, you've got somebody in the church, he's sleeping with his father's wife, and you're all just pretending that you don't see this? You should put him out. In order to put somebody outside of the church, then there needs to be some kind of inside of the church. So, so when somebody says, well, where do you see membership? I'd say, this is where we see it. You see, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there was no question as to who was inside the church because nobody had cars. So you're not driving from Barrie to Aurelia to visit a church. You're not driving from the south end to the north end. You are, you're worshiping where you live with the people that you live with. You're gathering together with people who know you. And at the time that he wrote that, it was costly to be a Christian. So nobody's at church, you know, casually like as a hobby. Nobody's here because this might be good for business. No, this is terrible for business. If you're here, it's because you love Jesus. And so when Paul wrote those commands, there was no membership, of course. But everybody knew who was in. You get baptized, you're a member. You're like, you're in. How do we recreate that in a world where we do have cars? And we've got lots of wonderful churches all around. How do we ever know who's in and who's out? Well, the way we recreate that is through church membership. That's why we think that's important. And so then, when somebody becomes a member, what they're essentially saying is, I'm here, I am a follower of Jesus, and I want to walk in accordance with what we see in God's word. I want you to hold me accountable in this. And we as a church say, okay, amen, you are here, we see that, you are a Christian, we see that, and we are committed to walking with you according to what we see in Scripture. That's that's what it is. So now let's talk about a a hypothetical scenario now, because we see this process. Believer Bob, if there's a Bob in the room, I'm sorry, I always use Bob, that's just the easiest one. Believer Bob, uh, he's going to be the subject here, and Believer Bob is engaged in sin. Um, In fact, Believer Bob's having an affair on his wife, and you're friends with Believer Bob. So how do we follow this process? Well, first, you would go to Believer Bob privately. Not to the prayer group, not to talk to all your friends. You're going to go to Believer Bob privately, and you're going to say, Bob, what are you doing? You know, I, look at, this is, this is what God's word says. This is what you're doing in your life. This is sin. And again, in most situations, Bob is going to weep and repent, and oh, you are, you're right, I repent. I, I need to deal with this, and you follow up with the wife. And, done, you've restored your brother. But what if Believer Bob doesn't? What if Believer Bob has a hundred excuses? You don't understand. My marriage is loveless. My wife, my wife has emotionally abandoned me long ago. It's, it's, it's torture living in that marriage. And God would not want me to be unhappy like that for a lifetime. He'll have a hundred excuses because we always do in our sin. What happens at that point? Well, according to verse 16, Jesus says you're going to go back to Believer Bob with one or two other witnesses. People who know him, love him, can attest to what's going on. 
And as a group, you're going to come to Believer Bob and you're going to confront him and, and pray with him and plead with him and say, Bob, this is wrong. You, you can't do this. And if, if Bob weeps and repents and says, you're all right, I agree. I need to turn. Well, then you've, you've won your brother. Process over. But if Bob turns to the lot of you and says, no, you guys, you're so legalistic. You don't understand. Not my Jesus. My Jesus wouldn't trap me in this terrible marriage. He wouldn't leave me in a place where I'm lonely and neglected and have nobody to turn to. If he's going to persist in his sin with his excuses, well then, verse 17 says, you you bring that to the church. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Because, let's say, believer Bob, he's, he's not a member at any church. He doesn't really belong to any church. Well, what do you do? Do you kind of go around and knock on the doors of various churches and say, hey, Believer Bob's been here a number of times. Is, could, could we deal with this as a church? Well, Bob's not invited that church to exercise any accountability over his life. Can you imagine if somebody came here and said, you know, so-and-so, they were here seven weeks ago, and I know you don't know them, but they're sinning, and we need to call a meeting. Can't do that. So if Believer Bob doesn't belong to a church, then that's as far as you can go in the process. But if he does... If Believer Bob has covenanted and said, hey, I'm, wa- I'm here and I'm walking with Jesus here and we've covenanted with him and said, yeah, we're going to walk with you. Well, now, now you've got to call a private meeting of the members. And we do these often on a Sunday night, not with everybody else, but just with the membership. And where we're going to get together, we read from a prepared statement. We're not off the cuff because the goal is restoration, not punishment. So we're not going to share embarrassing details, but enough for the congregation to know that this is a, a sin situation. And then we're going to deal with it there. We're going to pray about it there. Now, if you, there's a, de- a detailed explanation of that process in our bylaws. And you're welcome to look at that. Well, essentially, all it is is Matthew 18, 15 to 20. But I'm sure you've got questions. We fleshed that all out in terms of what that practically looks like. But I'll be honest with you. It's really weird that we do this. Um, I mentioned it's an awkward one for guests to come in. Back, back in our grandparents' day, it'd be weird if a church didn't do this. But something has shifted along the way, and now, man, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find churches that actually do this. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's certainly not the air we breathe. It's not Canadian. But it is so clearly commanded by Jesus. Like, who, who could argue that Jesus is, is calling us to handle these things as the church? It's, it's so clearly commanded by Jesus. Can I tell you something? And he's a better shepherd than I am. Or than any other pastor in this country is. One old preacher once warned, when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. Now he wrote that a while ago. Um, It's kind of a prophetic statement, I think, when I read that. Because when I look at the North American church, I think that there's some truth to that. When discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. I'll just throw this out there. So much bad has happened over the last... 10, 20, 30 years in the North American church. We can all agree, regardless of what you think about this, we all agree. It's, it is disgusting how much sin has been unearthed, exposed, how much stuff was running rampant. Nobody ever dealt with it. Nobody ever addressed it. Abusive leaders, corrupt organizations, the whole thing. Real people really getting hurt, really turning away from Jesus and really wanting nothing to do with the church because that's the place where that stuff happens. That makes all of us angry, right? I'm angry when I think about that. Our response is to go on the internet and to write about how angry we are. And I get it. Like, and we're going to talk about how frustrated we are and we're going to give full vent. And in some way we think this is doing something. This is accountability. This is solving the problem. And listen, I'm not trying to shame you if that's your approach to all of this. But that pastor 
down there in Texas. I don't know that your tweet really is holding him accountable in any way whatsoever, but I would suggest that there is something you could actually do that would really solve the problem. How many of us in North America who are so angry about these sins that have been allowed to fester refuse ourselves to enter into any accountability? Is it any surprise that as the church in North America has ripped away all structure of accountability and said, no, this is about me and Jesus and nobody's going to tell me what to do. As we've ripped off all of that, is it any surprise that suddenly we discover that private sins have been building up and are destroying our witness in the world? Perhaps Jesus was, was wise. I don't even want to ask that question that way. Jesus is wise. And his way is right. And he's given us a system such that we can walk together as brothers and sisters in accountability. If you want to make a difference, I would argue those tweets, I don't know that they're doing much at all. But if you could say, hey, just like those people, I'm a person who's capable of sin. I need to walk in accountability. And I want to walk in a church where the pastor's going to be in accountability and the elders are going to be accountability and where there's a system that we can actually speak to sin and deal with it before it hurts real people like all that stuff did. That's where real change begins. Nobody's going to be applauding you as you put that out. There's no Twitter um, observer crew that's going to be saying, like, good for you. That self-righteous response, nobody's going to see it except Jesus who gave you this instruction. Uh, that's a tangent. Welcome, if you're visiting with us the first time. I think I'm passionate about that. Healthy confrontation should follow the biblical process. But unfortunately, the next lesson we learn is that healthy confrontation will not always lead to restoration. So I don't want you to think pie in the sky. If we, would just, if we just observed all of this, then perfect, everything's solved. Well, actually, no. Sometimes you go to a brother, you go to a sister, you go with witnesses, you, you bring the church, everybody addresses this, and still they persist in their sin. Well, then, then what do you do? Jesus explains, beginning in 17, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. See, sometimes the process does not end with restoration. But can I tell you, when it's followed faithfully, the process always ends with clarity. And that's not nothing. Clear is kind, a wise friend has taught me. Clear is kind. If that person refuses to let go of their sin and they refuse to listen to you, they refuse to listen to that small group of friends, they refuse to listen even to the church and they say, no, I'm going to hold on to this sin, then that person gives every evidence that they're not actually a follower of Jesus and it is the church's responsibility to look them in the eyes and tell them that truth clearly. They need to hear that. And when we make that declaration, Jesus teaches us, when we bind on earth, he says, they are bound in heaven. Not because we have some authority to like, you know, strong arm God into upholding our decision, but because we have authority from Jesus to hold people accountable to what Jesus has taught. So they're bound in heaven, not because we say so, but we say so because they're bound in heaven. We have to tell the truth about the evidence that we see in front of us. Now in our context, that looks like the members voting. So we have that private meeting, as I mentioned, reading from a prepared statement. We're not trying to embarrass anyone, but we want the church to know the generality of, of what's at stake. And then we hold a vote, and that vote is to acknowledge that we no longer recognize this person as a follower of Jesus, because if they were, they wouldn't continue in this. 
And then after we have held that vote, that person, they're not a member at the church because we don't recognize them as a brother or sister. And then we break into groups of three and four and we pray for them. And that's what, that process probably happens once or twice a year in our context. If you're wondering how, what, how often is this, that's probably a once or twice a thing year. And we pray for them and we earnestly plead that God would bring them home because that's what we're after. Not punishment, but restoration. Matthew Henry notes, prayer must evermore go along with church discipline. Pass no sentence which you cannot in faith ask God to confirm. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean that we just wash our hands of people. That's not what we're after. It doesn't mean that we're writing people off and saying God's done with them. No, by God's grace, we don't believe that he's done with any of those people. We still love them. We still want to see them restored to Christ. We're going to reach out when it's appropriate. If, if they grace these doors or we see them in the community, we're going to hug them. We, we love them. But what it means is that we won't go along with the lie that they are a follower of Jesus. In love, we're going to tell them the truth. Jesus did this. People tried to follow Jesus, and he said, okay, all right, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And they're like, ah. Oh. He's like, yeah, because you love money more than me. Or people would come, and he'd say, all right, well, you're going to have to leave behind everything you know. And they're like, well, i got to go back. And he's like, no, you're not worthy of me. Jesus was clear with people all the time. And we're called to resemble Jesus So beware of the friends who are happy to affirm you in your sin. Beware of the churches who are too nice to warn you if you're on a road that leads to hell. We don't do this perfectly. Can I just say that really clearly? In case you're thinking, wow, he must think that they are just nailing it. No, no. We don't do this perfectly. We will never do this perfectly, unfortunately. Not even close, probably. But I agree with one old preacher who says, The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. Meaning, better to to do this poorly than to ignore it altogether. Better to clumsily address my my brother who's, who's wandering away in sin than to very elegantly sit on my hands and just watch him run headlong into hell. Have the hard talks. As a church, and I'm, now I'm talking individually, have the hard talks, even if you do it imperfectly. Tell the truth, even if you do it clumsily. Jesus doesn't expect us to be perfect. Praise God for that. He doesn't expect us individually to be perfect. He doesn't expect Redeemer to be perfect. But he does expect us and call us to be obedient. Seventh and finally, we're coming to a close. Healthy confrontation is hard, but Jesus is in it. Jesus is in it. We see this in verses 19 to 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, of course, this is a frequently cited verse. And um, it's a frequently cited verse in prayer groups and small groups. And, um, and I'm not, if, that, if, you've, if you use this in your prayer groups, uh, I'm not shaming you. And so it's not embarrassing. Don't be embarrassed. But this, we often misquote this verse as a way of kind of reminding ourselves that, hey, our prayer group is small, but Jesus is still with us. Um, but let me just remind you, if your prayer group was, if it was just you, would Jesus be there? Yes, right? So it's, this isn't like a, how many people do we need to get in the room before Jesus is with us. That's not what he's teaching us. So then the question is, well, then why, what is he saying? Why did he say that? I would argue he said that because he has just given us a nearly impossible command And now he's reminding us, and by the way, I'm with you. Can you think of another time when he did that? The Great Commission, Matthew 28. 
He tells us to go out and make disciples of all the nations. He's telling us, go out and baptize them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And after that nearly impossible command, he says, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I think he's doing the exact same thing right here. David Platt says, Jesus knows that church discipline is not easy, that we'll be tempted to shy away from it and not carry it out. So he's encouraging us with the resources of heaven. Because when Jesus calls us to do seemingly impossible things, he accompanies that command with a promise of his presence. And I need that. He's with us in the process because this eternally matters. There is an enemy of our souls. The the, the devil is the deceiver. That's one of the ways he's described in the Bible. He lies to us. He tricks us. I go back to the example with Believer Bob and his affair. Believer Bob has got 101 excuses for why his sin is okay. And so does Believer Levi and every other person who ever, as we wander into our sin, we always have an excuse. Well, you don't understand how lonely I am. Or you don't understand how hard this is. You don't understand the temptations that I face. You don't understand my background, my upbringing. My, we always have 101 things. And the devil's he's a deceiver. He's lying to us. He's whispering. He's building up these lies that enable us to make peace with sin, to leave the path that leads to life and wander into ruin. How do you combat an enemy whose primary weapon is lies? With the truth. The truth will set you free. But telling the truth is hard to do. So Jesus, after telling us, be the people who tell the truth, he follows up and says, and I will be with you every step of the way. I'll be with you. When you muster up the courage to talk to your friend, who's going down that dangerous path. Jesus promises that he will be with you in a powerful way. When we as a congregation call a meeting to attempt to restore a straying believer, Jesus promises he will be with us in a powerful way. And can I tell you something? I have witnessed him keep this promise countless times. There have been so many times when I've needed to go and talk to a person and I'm like, I do not want to do this. Uh, my, my bent is, is a people pleaser. If you know me at all, you can probably see that oozing out of me. That's not a good thing, but that is, that is my natural fleshly bent. And so anytime I have to have a hard conversation with people or preach a hard sermon, everything inside of me is like, no, I don't want to do this. And yet I can tell you I've gone into meetings where before I can even open my mouth, God has already prepared their heart and it's, it's like the meeting turns into just a hug. Not all the time. You're like, I'm never meeting with you again. <laughs> Uh, bad analogy I've been in meetings where I'm like what do I even say I don't even know what, how do I even address this I have no idea I'm so, I'm so dumb I don't have a clue you get in there and all of a sudden God just brings these scriptures to mind that are so immediately relevant some insight that I never would have thought of in my planning and it comes out and it's like boom that's, that's what was needed for this moment it reminds me of when in Acts when Jesus tells the disciples don't worry about what you're going to say when you drag before the authorities the Holy Spirit's with you I'm going to give you the words in that moment different context but sometimes equally frightening whether I'm going before the police about to throw me in prison or whether I'm going before the brother and about to look him in the eye and talk about that issue in his marriage like, it's frightening to do that but he gives us what we need in the moment. And I can promise you it's true. We've seen it. I can testify to meetings we've had as a congregation. We're difficult meetings, painful meetings, and yet somehow beautiful meetings in the midst of it. He loves his church. He loves his people. The Jesus who gave this command, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, that I just read, that made us uncomfortable in moments, that came from Jesus who loves you 
and loves the church and loves the lost who are, who are going to see this church living out our lives in the world. That came from the good shepherd who leaves behind 99 so that he can track down the one. It came from him. And he's going to be right with us every step of the way as we choose to obey him in this. So let's trust him, church. Let's stop avoiding the conversations, the confrontations that he, that he promises to bless. And let's ask him now for the help to do this seemingly impossible task. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, first of all, I want to ask for your help just as we receive what is your word, uh, which is intermingled with, with my personality just as I deliver it as a preacher. And I'm mindful, God, that sometimes my personality is unhelpful and gets in the way. Um, and so, God, I just pray anything that was unhelpful today, I pray that it would just fall to the floor and be forgotten in an instant. Uh, Lord, but, but where your truth resounds, I pray that, God, it would be pressed deep into our hearts. I do pray, God, that we would grow in this. Not because we strive to be the courageous church, but because we strive to be the people who look like Jesus. And Lord, in order for us, all of us, myself included, to, to resemble Jesus in the world, we need the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, who can be that voice like Nathan and identify the things in us that we've grown blind to, the things that we don't see, the things that are hurting us, the things that are hurting our children, the things that are hurting our witness at work. Lord, we, we need one another. And Lord, it's a gift that you've given to us and it's a gift that often we neglect. Lord, it's a gift that sometimes we despise. Lord, I think of Proverbs, a fool despises correction. Lord, it's, it's the wise man, it's the wise woman that welcomes rebuke. So Lord, help us to do that in a healthy way in this place. Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to become the people who are wagging our fingers at the outside world. Uh, Lord, this is, this is for the household of God. Uh, as, as Paul said, what, it's not our job to be judging the, the world, but Lord, it is our job to be holding one another accountable here um, and by the Holy Spirit to be speaking the truth to one another in love, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. Lord, so we do ask for your help today. Lord, I want to pray today, it just it comes to my mind, that there are people uh, in this room who have probably really, really been hurt by the church in the past. Lord, there, been, there are people who have been really hurt by um, maybe by times when the church hasn't dealt with sin and the corruption all just came out to the surface and it just completely destroyed their confidence and unsettled them. Lord, I pray for healing for them. Uh, Lord, I, I think of what we've talked about even just in the wider North American context. Lord, there's so much scandal. Lord, and, I, and it feels like there are some almost insurmountable obstacles that have been lifted up in our culture for a lot of people. Lord, I thank you that there is no obstacle that's insurmountable for you. So God, I pray that you would help all of those people who, who feel as if they've been forever pushed away from being able to trust Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you'd bring them home. And Lord, I pray that when they come, they would find us to be a people who are healthy, a people who, who value the things that you value, which includes accountability. Lord, I pray that they would find uh, us safe. And Lord, I just, I pray for your help in this. Lord, we do these things imperfectly. Lord, forgive us for all the times we didn't speak when we should have. Lord, help us to move forward in a better way. And Lord, help us to do it in love, resembling Jesus. So God, we ask for all of this in the powerful, saving name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?